The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do. I um, invite you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We'll have an usher bring you a Bible. We have plenty of those um, over there. Anybody need a Bible? I don't. Well, we've got one right here, Lewis, right? So Miss Liz Grenier uh, needs one. So if, if you're getting one of those Bibles or if you grabbed one on the way in, you'll find the text on page 270. Um, is where you'll find uh, the, the text. The, I've, I've titled this morning's sermon, Jealous for His Honor. Jealous for His Honor. Let me take a sip before I get started. Many of us have heard about um, some Muslim extremists who will go to great lengths to protect the honor of their prophet Muhammad. Now, this, what I'm about to say certainly isn't true of, of all Muslims, and so I don't mean to paint with a broad brush and say every Muslim is this way, but there are many who feel this way. For example, in 2015, there was an attack on the French weekly paper called Charlie Hebdo. Uh, the paper had repeatedly printed controversial, cartoonish depictions of Muhammad, which ultimately led two brothers, Saeed and Sharif, to storm into the Charlie Hebdo headquarters and kill 12 people while injuring another 11. Ten years earlier, in 2005, a Danish cartoonist, a guy named Kurt Vestergaard, drew a controversial cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad wearing a bomb in his turban. Uh, that cartoon triggered multiple assassination attempts and led to other murders. Um, it got so bad that Vestigard required around-the-clock personal security. He even had a panic room built in his house, and so when one, one of his assailants came into the house, he and his granddaughter were able to escape to the panic room. Um, in 2010, a published Al-Qaeda hit list gave Vestigard's name as someone who had, quote, insulted Islam, unquote. Vestigard, by the way, he ultimately died in his sleep in Copenhagen just last month. Uh, so he wasn't killed by terrorists. He died from a long illness that he had. But then there are those less dramatic instances of people suing one another or, or getting into fistfights with one another to protect one's honor or the honor of somebody that we love. Uh, you know, in some cases, it gets rather juvenile, right? Like when you're in high school and somebody says something not nice about your girlfriend, you say, well, we're going we're gonna to take care of this, and you get into fisticuffs with somebody to protect her honor. But brothers and sisters, that is not the standard to which we're called to in the Bible. If someone says something derogatory about God, for example, the Bible doesn't tell us to take that person out. We're not called ever to defend the honor of God. Because God is perfect, perfectly capable of defending his own honor, as we'll see in our text today. So if you're in 1 Samuel chapter 5, say amen. 
I'm going to read these 12 verses. It's a shorter sermon today with the children in here and plus everything that's going on um, afterwards. Uh, But follow along as I read chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us, and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God to Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God, of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us. And our people, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. And so we pray, Lord Jesus that you would use this time, this brief moment we have now together, use this time to mold us and shape us. Instruct us through, through your word so that what we are not, you will make us. What we know not, you will teach us. And what we have not, you will give us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so if you're a note taker, my central idea for today's message is this. God will by no means leave sin unpunished. God will by no means leave sin unpunished. I'm going to make three brief comments from the text. Um, super easy to take notes today. These are all one word. Uh, first word is guilt. Point number one, guilt. Our story starts off today reminding us of what we saw last week. The Philistines have just defeated the Israelites in a big, big way. You'll remember that 30,000 Israelite soldiers are dead. But more importantly than that, you'll recall that the Philistines capture the Ark of God. Now, the Ark of God was one of Israel's most sacred artifacts. It represented God's presence itself among the people. 
Now, last week we saw that we, sh- we shouldn't trust in the ark. We should trust in the God to whom the ark pointed. And so the Philistines, after they capture the ark, they take it from Ebenezer and they begin traveling southward. Ebenezer would have been in the northern part of, of the Philistine territory and they start traveling southward to Ashdod. It's about 30 miles or so south. And they're on their way to Ashdod because they're trying to take the ark to the house of Dagon. But who is Dagon? Well, Dagon is the chief deity of the Philistines. He's their number one god. And we know from archaeological evidence that the worship of Dagon dates back centuries, even millennia, all the way back to the third millennia B.C. So to put that in perspective, people were worshiping Dagon before Moses was born. People were probably worshiping Dagon before Abraham was born. Abraham was born toward the end of the third millennia B.C. So his worship goes way, way, way back in time. And according to ancient mythology, Dagon is actually the father of Baal. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you, you've heard the name Baal. We, we, we actually read much more about Baal worship in the pages of the Old Testament than we do about Dagon worship. But Dagon is Baal's daddy, so to speak, or at least according to ancient mythology, right? Um, a little bit more about Dagon. Um, the Philistines were a people of the sea, And so it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that this god, their god Dagon, was actually a fish god. The the prefix dag, it's Hebrew for fish. And so here's here's a picture. Go ahead and show that up, LD. This is is what Dagon supposedly uh, looked like. You can see he's represented by this half-man, half-fish creature. And so that's who Dagon is, or at least who the Philistines believed he is. Of course, in reality, there's no such... There's no such deity as Dagon. He's, he's a myth. He's a superstition. But the Philistines, this is what, they believe that he's real and they worship him. And so they build temples for Dagon. And it's to one of those temples that they're now taking the Ark of the Covenant. Now picture in your mind a large statue of Dagon like the picture I showed you there. Located, it's, it's, it's in his house, it's in his temple. And the Philistines, they come marching into that temple with their spoils of war, what they've, what they've gathered from their war, and they have with them the Ark of the Covenant. And they think it's a good idea. Notice this in verse 2. This is super important. These two words are really, really important. They think it's a good idea to set up the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon. Do you see what they're doing there? They're using the sacred things of God in their own pagan worship. Now again, we covered this last week. The Ark of the Covenant, He is not God Himself. The Ark isn't. But it represents His presence. And so these pagan Philistines are all too happy to use the Ark of the Covenant of God to facilitate or to help them in their pagan worship. And so they set up the Ark before Dagon. And then they go to bed that night, show up first thing in the morning, and notice this in verse 3. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Strange, isn't it? I mean, after all, Dagon, he's just a statue. So how, how does an inanimate statue fall down, face down before the ark? 
You know, so I thought about it, any number of things maybe could have happened. Perhaps, perhaps somebody could have come in the temple, right, and, and knocked him over on purpose and, and to, to make him fall face down before the ark. But that's not really likely because, remember, Dag, he's their number one deity and they're in a Philistine city. Nobody's going to come and knock the number one deity down and make him bow. So that, that didn't happen. Or, or maybe it was an earthquake or some kind of seismic tremor. It caused the, caused the statue to fall over. But nothing else in the temple appears to be out of order. It's just Dagon is the only one who's lying face down. And we don't read anything about an earthquake happening. So what happened? Well, here's what I believe happened. I believe God himself came in that temple and went and knocked Dagon over before his temple or before his ark. But at any rate, it's super instructive that, that the Philistines, that they're, they're not really too alarmed. They, they go in there, they see him lying in front, and say, oh, look, how did that happen? And what do they do? They just pick him up and they put him back in his place and go on their business. Go to bed that night thinking, no big deal. The irony, by the way, there is thick, if you think about it. You know, the Philistines believe that Dagon controls everything around them. But yet the Philistines themselves have to come in with their hands and they have to pick Dagon up. So the Philistines are actually in control of their god who supposedly controls everything. Uh, they miss, of course, the irony uh, of, that they're controlling their own god. But they go to bed again. They wake up first thing in the morning and what do you know? There he is again. He's face down before Dagon or excuse me, before the ark. Just like the last time. Except this time, his head... And his hands are lying on the ground. They've been cut off. All that's left is his torso, his trunk. That, that's all that's left of him. And so we're told in verse 5 that this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So in other words, that, that first impression, the first night where he's just lying, that didn't really make a big impression on him. But day two when they walk in and they see him falling down again and his head cut off and his arms cut off. Now that made a lasting impression for generations even. So as this book is written, they're saying they still don't go in there to this day. And so here, here's the guilt. This is the guilt of the Philistines. They were guilty of using the holy things of God in their pagan worship. And as we'll see in just a moment, they actually they get punished for their sin. But before we get too hard on the Philistines, I want us to remember that we're all guilty of sin. All of us are. There is no one who's sinless. No, not one, the Bible says, with the exception of Jesus, of course. The Bible says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But not only are we guilty of sin in general, kind of like just you know, in general, sometimes we're guilty of the same types of sins that the pagan peoples committed in the Bible. Sometimes we use the holy things of God and we unite those things with pagan worship. Let me, let me explain. Think about our bodies for a moment. The Scriptures declare that our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit. So, those of you here this morning, you're, you say, I'm a Christian. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I've, I've repented of my sin. I trust Him. Your body, as you sit there right now, your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. That's what the Scripture teaches. My body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. But yet how often do we unite our bodies? Whether that be physically or spiritually or mentally or even emotionally, how often do we unite our bodies with the things that do not please the Lord? 
The Bible calls that idolatry. When we unite our bodies with things that don't please the Lord, that's idolatry. It may be the way we use our words, whether those words are spoken or written. We can use our words in idolatrous ways. It may be the way we think about certain things. We can use our minds in, a, in, a, in an idolatrous fashion. Here's my point, what I'm trying to communicate, is I don't want us to read this text and think, boy, man, those Philistines, they were some kind of bad people. I'm glad I'm not like them. I don't want us to do that because the root of every sin lies in all of our hearts, mine included. This is why that great Puritan pastor, John Owen, said, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, we need to see our guilt before God. We need to own our guilt before God, and then we turn to God for His grace. But before we get to that grace, let's look at point number two, God's punishment. Punishment. God's punishment on the people of Ashdod begins in verse 6. We read that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. That language of the hand of the Lord was heavy, it's, it's language that's used four times in verses 6 through 11. And it speaks, it's a, it's a language of wrath. It's language of punishment. It's language of judgment, of, of God's wrath. You know, sometimes we don't like thinking about the wrath of God. But our God is not a God who will be mocked. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And as for the people of Ashdod and its territory, God inflicts them with tumors. Tumors. Just like you would have a tumor in your body today. Here's the point. God's bringing physical punishment. He's bringing physical disease as a punishment on the people of Ashdod. Now, please don't read anything into what I'm saying there or what the Bible is saying. I'm not saying, nor is the Bible saying, that every form of physical disease is God's specific punishment on you. Or on the people like you. That's not what the Bible is saying. That's not what I'm saying. But in the broader scope of life, we know that physical, physical sickness exists in the world because of the fall. Because of sin. If the fall had never happened, listen, sickness wouldn't exist. Okay? Sickness is a result of the fall. But not every occasion of sickness is God's judgment on that individual. So if you're like... Maybe you're struggling with something right now. You have a, a sickness. It could be something very significant. It could be something not so significant. You think, did, what did I do to... to that, that's not the right question, brother and sister. Not to say that you did something to cause that sickness. It's not what the Bible is teaching here. So, for example, we're, we're not saying that COVID-19, for example, is God's judgment on mankind. I've heard people say that. That is not true. That would be an improper application of this. But what I am saying, and what the Bible is saying, is that God is very capable of bringing physical disease to our bodies as a means of punishment for our sins. So that could happen. But it doesn't mean that every occurrence of it is that happening. We see that, by the way, um, not just here in this passage, but even in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians uh, 11, Paul says that a number of them were sick, and some of them had even died because they were taking the Lord's Supper in vain, or in an unworthy manner. And so we see that idea that judgment can happen, physical disease and judgment can happen um, as a means of God's punishment. But here in our text, the people of Ashdod, they're suffering because they're using the ark of God in their pagan temple. 
And so we read in verse 7, it says, When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. They recognize the connection. They recognize that it's their use of the ark that's causing all of their problems. So in verse 8, they call all the lords of the Philistines together and they say, What shall we do? But instead of repenting, of using the ark in an unworthy manner, instead of sending the ark back to Israel, they pass the buck. They send the ark down the road to the next Philistine town down the road. They send it to Gath, about 11 miles as the crow flies. Gath, you may remember, is uh, the hometown of one very large Philistine who we'll talk about named Goliath, who we'll get to in due time as we walk through 1 Samuel. But the ark makes its way to Gath, and we're told in verse 9, Again, the hand of the Lord was against Gath, causing a very great panic. And God afflicted the men of that city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So if you're keeping score, it's a different city, but it's the same result. Pagans are using the ark for their own glory, refusing to send it back to Israel. And God is jealous for His honor. He doesn't have anybody fighting for him. God is taking matters into his own hands. God is jealous for his own honor. Now, it doesn't take the people of Gath long to realize what's going on. So they pack up the ark and what do they do? They pass the buck, send it down to the next town. They ship it off to Ekron, another five or so miles down the road. For our purposes, again, it's important to recognize that Ekron is a city of the Philistines. And as soon as the ark, I mean, they step foot into the town of Ekron with the ark, and this is what we hear. This is the latter half of verse 10, if you're following along. The people of Ekron say, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They're frightened. Understandably so. I mean, the last two towns it's been in, it hasn't, you know, uh, you know the standard of living has gone down considerably uh, while the ark was there. And so they huddle up their leaders they beg their leaders to send the ark of God away and let it be returned to its own place so it won't kill them. And as long as the ark remains in Ekron, we learn in verse 11, the hand of God was heavy there. And we learn in verse 12 that those who do not die, so some are dying, but those who do not die are struck with tumors in Ekron as well. And the cry of the city goes up to heaven. And so what's happening here? Punishment is happening. That's what's happening. The Philistines are guilty before God. And God is meeting out His wrath on those pagan peoples. And beloved, our God does not change. He still judges and punishes sin today. God is not mocked. What we sow, we will also reap. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as we live now on the other side of the cross? Remember, this is all being written pre Jesus. What does that mean for us now post-Jesus? It takes me to my final point, which I've labeled redemption. Our text today in 1 Samuel ends with the hand of God being heavy on the people. Our text ends with some people dying and others being struck with tumors. That's where our text in 1 Samuel ends today. But praise be to God, that's not where the Bible ends. Praise be to God that that's not the final word. The Bible ends on a much sharper note of victory. Yes, yes, sin does continue throughout the rest of the Bible. Sin even continues to this day. But the Bible ends with sin being put in its place. So I want you to turn with me to the New Testament. 
to 1 John chapter 2. Pastor Brian uh, preached on this passage a few months back. Um, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, it's on page 1,210. Uh, 1 John, if you're not using one of those Bibles, just turn all the way to the book of Revelation and then turn back just like a couple of pages and you'll be in 1 John, okay? Um, 1 John chapter 2. I'm only going to read one verse from 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. says, He, he's talking about Jesus, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to say just two brief words about that verse and then we'll be done today. First, He, meaning, meaning Jesus again, He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is not a word that we throw around a lot. We don't use it a lot. Uh, basically, propitiation means that he, that satisfying God's wrath or satisfying God's justful wrath. You see, God is not wrong. You know, sometimes our first reaction when we see God punishing sin, we think, well, that's just not very loving of him. Why would he do that? And we, and we, we immediately then start to cast blame. Before, Why would God do that? God is not wrong in punishing sin. Whether it's the sin of the people in the Philistines or whether it's our sin, he is not wrong to punish sin. Because He is holy and righteous. He cannot leave sin unpunished. He would cease to be the God who He is if He left sin unpunished. So He must punish sin. But here's the good news. The good news for us is that Jesus Himself bore God's wrath against our sin when He died on the cross. As He hung on the cross, Jesus bore the weight of our guilt, of our sin guilt. He bore that on Himself. We might say that the hand of God was heavy on Jesus as He hung there on that cross. But Jesus propitiated God's wrath. He satisfied God's wrath. He bore our sin guilt on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. He paid the penalty so that we wouldn't have to. And as He fully satisfied the wrath of God against our sin, He was our propitiation. And praise be to God for that. Praise be to God for that. So that although we deserve, follow with me here, although we deserve God's wrath, God's wrath against our sin has already been paid for by Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's way of, of placing His stamp or His seal of approval and saying, yes, well done, I accept that sacrifice. That's what the resurrection is about. But here's the second thing I want us to notice from that one verse. The good news extends far beyond that Jesus is a propitiation for my sin or for your sin. You see, Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. That's what 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 is saying. And this is why, beloved, this is why we can offer, when you're, whether you're talking to a friend across the street or whether you're on an airplane to a foreign country or whether you're talking to a Taliban person or whether you're, wherever you're, whoever you're talking to, this is why we can offer the good news of Jesus to everyone and anyone. Because Jesus has already propitiated the sin. His death was sufficient. And so if you, maybe you have a loved one who 
isn't trusting in Christ, I want you to know that you can offer the Gospel to that person. And if they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, Jesus' sin will, or Jesus' death rather, will, will cover their sin. It will propitiate God's wrath against their sin. And so whereas the people of the Philistines were living on the backside of the cross where, where animal sacrifices were necessary at that time um, and to, to properly appease the wrath of God, today we simply trust in Jesus. I hope that's true of all of you. I hope that all of you have given your life to Christ so that He has taken care of your sin. But if you haven't, what a beautiful day to do that today. What a beautiful day to do that today. You don't, you don't, and you're welcome to come talk to me. As a matter of fact, I would love for you to come talk to me about that. That would be awesome. But there's only one mediator between you and God, and I'm not Him. There's only one mediator, and His name is Jesus. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, you can do so today by calling out and trusting in Him right now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your kindness and Your grace to us. We thank You that even though we're guilty, just as the Philistines were guilty, even though we deserve punishment, just as the Philistines received punishment, we thank You that Jesus bore our punishment for us. We thank You that in Your providence and Your care, You made a way for us to be restored into relationship with You. A, re a relationship that was broken because of sin. You restored that through Your Son and through His sacrifice. Lord, I pray that everyone in the, in the sound of my voice would understand that, would not just understand it, but would believe that. Father, there's anyone here today who's not done that, that today, Father, might be the day where they call out on Jesus to believe that. I pray this in His name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.